0: To Jonah chapter one, this evening. Jonah one started into the minor prophet uh, last Sunday night and continue on this evening. I want you to imagine with me for a few moments, if you will, that you are uh, driving home from church tonight, and as you make your way along the road, you see all too familiar red and blue lights. And hear a blaring siren behind you, and uh, you begin to logically, sort of a panic mindset, think through this and go, "Well, obviously, everything's fine. I I didn't do anything." And you're kind of reasoning yourself out of the fear that crept up in your spirit, and you say, "Well, you know, I'm supposed to pull over to the right, so I'll pull over to the right, and I'm going to wait for this police officer to pass." and Then I'll go on my merry way, hopefully with lots of green lights in front of me as a result. And uh, yet as you pull off to the right, your heart sinks, your stomach turns because those red lights slow down and as you come to a stop there on the shoulder of the road, the officer stops behind you. You begin to process what's taking place. You panic. Again, this is hypothetical. And you decide to take your foot off the brake, hit the gas, and go. I didn't do anything. I'm sure. I'm going to run. This can't be possible. No, this would never happen to me. And you are gone. That would be an incredibly bad decision. Radar, or radio, is always faster than your gas pedal, right? It is only a matter of time, and it, your joyride will be over. It's an incredibly bad decision. It might have seemed like a good idea in the moment that, where you rushed and went, I'm going to go, but it would be a bad decision. As we come back to Jonah this evening, let me just remind you, that far worse than that is what jonah does here in fact if i were going to give a title I don't often title what we do sunday to sunday but i would say what we're going to see tonight is the deceptive folly of fleeing god the deceptive folly of fleeing god it would be foolish to run from the police officer who pulls you over no doubt it would be foolish and i don't want to create a false dichotomy here, but I will say it is far more foolish to run from obeying God. Now, the two of those might end up being one and the same, okay, because God has ordained power, but when we run from obeying God, it is an incredibly foolish decision. We see that clearly in the book of Jonah. We'd go, yeah, I get it. I mean, look what happens here. And yet, I want to remind us, when God prompts us to do something good and we don't, in light of James 4, it's sin. It's the folly of fleeing what God has prompted you to do. Jonah here is running from a positive thing that God wants him to do. And as a result, it's sin. Just like, on the other hand, when we do something God has said not to do, That's sin and certainly foolish as well. Last week, we began by looking at God's command to Jonah in verses 1 and 2. As we looked at that, we heard that it was given decisively, really simply. Arise, go, get up from where you are, and the idea being get up quickly, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. In other words, go tell them God knows what's going on. And again, the command was given very personally, very clearly, because it's to Jonah, the son of Amittai. These two bear forth the word of the Lord. I mean, what a privilege as a prophet of God to say, here is a message from God to you. That's God's command to Jonah. And yet, as we got to verse 3, we looked at Jonah's choice. Where God had told Jonah clearly to go, Jonah says, no, I'm out. And he runs in verse 3. It's that contrasting conjunction starts verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee. He makes a sinful, intentional, rebellious choice. As we said last week, he also makes a spiritual, irrational, foolish choice. Because, as verse 3 says, two different times in there, if you look back at it with me, he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Here's an opportunity to serve in God's court, if you will. Here's an opportunity to stand before the Most High and serve Him in what He's called you to do. And Jonah runs from the presence of that opportunity. He's not going to be a servant of God. Now, again, it's, I, ironic, because theologically, we understand, again, you can't escape God's presence. Psalmist in Psalm 139 makes that clear. Whither shall I go from thy presence? And as Jonah runs, the text, both what we'll see this week, Lord willing, next week, it's clear. God's still there. Jonah has simply fled from the presence of God as a servant of God. With the opportunity to do what God has commanded him to do we were to summarize what we saw last week, we could say it this way. It was Jonah's sinful rebellion. So we pick up in verse 4 tonight. We want to look secondly at God's sovereign response. So here was Jonah's sinful rebellion. Here's what God said. Here's what Jonah did. And now we're going to come and say, now, what will God do as a result? And we'll see it under this first heading of God's sovereign response. Look with me at verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. There was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. If you catch the contrast, and they really flow throughout the book of Jonah, but just in these first four verses, here's what God did, verse 3 starts, but here's what Jonah did, and so you get to verse 4, but here's what God does as a result. Once again, as you read verse 4, it's the Lord, it's in all caps, it's Jehovah, the the I am, the self-existent one, who is making these things happen. In other words, again, in the text, Jonah is running from the one who needs nothing to sustain him. He's that powerful. In fact, later on, we're going to listen to even Jonah's own words about God and realize Jonah knows he's a being of incredible power, and yet Jonah can't obey. Really, we should say it this way, Jonah won't obey. He runs from God. It's foolish, just like we are when we disobey God. So we look at God's sovereign response. First, we see it's driven by powerful ability. In fact, I'm going to share with you four sort of theological thoughts from the book of Jonah. We'll hit them a number of times as we work our way through. But I want you to keep them in mind right at the outset as we see God acting against Jonah's rebellion. First, God's response is driven by his powerful ability. He can act. He can change the weather. As you read verse 4, he can stir the sea to the point where the ship is about to be broken up. Because God's that powerful. Things that we can't impact. We can't go, you know what, I'd like to change the weather today. Nothing. God can. He has that kind of ability. And it's clearly on display both here in chapter 1. And certainly at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, it goes all the way through even to chapter 4, God's response is driven by powerful ability. Really, we could say unparalleled ability. Secondly, God's response is driven by just sovereignty. Just sovereignty. Justice will occur. Jonah's disobeyed. And as a result, consequences will happen. Justice will be done. Again, we've talked about this much. We touched even briefly this morning. Many today like to impugn God's motives, to question God. How could God? Why would God? But we must keep in mind, God is always, always just. Always. Even to the point, this ties into what we'll see next in the text, but from a New Testament perspective, even to the point of saying, I'll satisfy my own justice By pouring out the wrath that you deserve on my son, so that my justice isn't hurt, but I can still show mercy and forgive. God doesn't sacrifice ever, 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 ever his justice. And here in the book of Jonah, God's just sovereignty is on display. He's not going to let Jonah get away with rebellion without consequences. God's response is driven by his powerful ability, by his just sovereignty. And really, we're just at the beginning of his chastisement of Jonah. Just at the beginning. Third, God's sovereign response is driven by relentless mercy. Relentless mercy. We touched this last week. You're going to hear it frequently through the book of Jonah. But I love the fact that God won't let Jonah go. He'd be right to. And again, we do realize, like in Romans 1, God does give man and sinful bent over at points. But God's mercy is on display because instead of simply giving Jonah over to what he wants, God won't let Jonah go. He won't let Jonah get his own way. And it is a good thing, an incredibly good thing. I mean Even as we get to the end of chapter 1 and Jonah's like, just throw me overboard, God says, I still have a plan. He won't let Jonah go. His mercy is persistent. And while there are points in life where maybe we don't want to obey, maybe we do want to run, recognize how good and loving and merciful God is when he pursues to say, no, I'm not going to let you go. That will hurt you. That will harm you. Your sin has deceived you. It will destroy you. I'm not giving you over to that. We don't let the skeptics dictate our theology when we talk about his just sovereignty, but we also need to see that balanced with a relentless mercy. And he gets to decide how he shows that and to whom he shows that. Ultimately, that leads us to a final thought in relation to God's sovereign response. It's driven by his own glory. It's driven by his own glory. God will be exalted. He will be exalted. By the end of the book of Jonah, we still see this prophet who's struggling with what God has done, but it's very clear Jehovah deserves to be worshipped. Along the way, we'll see tonight pagan soldiers turn to him. They've prayed to their gods. He hasn't come through. But who do they turn to? Jehovah. He's the one. He has the power. His name will be exalted. You get to Jonah chapter 3, and the Assyrians, the Ninevites, turn to God as well. Because God will be glorified. It's just like We've been studying on Wednesday nights, working through Exodus 14, as God leads his people through the Red Sea, he says, my name will be exalted. God's sovereign response here in the book of Jonah is, yes, driven by some powerful ability. that kind of captivates our mind as God sends the storm and then sends the fish to the gourd at the end, to the repentance of the Ninevites in chapter 3. I mean, God's powerful ability is on display. But so is his just sovereignty. He's going to control things so that justice is done. Jonah realizes he's going to suffer consequences for his sin, chastisement because God loves him, This brings us to that third thought, God's relentless mercies on display for his own glory. Last week, we looked at Jonah's sinful rebellion. We've started by looking at God's sovereign response. But third, let's look together at Jonah's stubborn reaction. The Lord sent the storm. You know, I realize for different ones of us in our different walks of life, God begins to send consequences and right up, like, all right, Lord, I got it. That was wrong. Your spirit has prompted. We're convicted of sin. God, would you please forgive me? We go to people. We make those things right. That's wonderful when that occurs. But I also know some of us, maybe I'm thinking mainly to me, but I have to imagine some of you are there as well. Where the Lord begins to bring consequences. He begins to chastise. He begins to expose your sin. And you keep headed down the same path. Jonah does that here. His response is incredibly stubborn. So we look at Jonah's stubborn reaction. I want you to notice with me first in verse 5 his sleep. All that's going on, and Jonah's out, he's sleeping. Then the mariners were afraid, cried every man unto his God, cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Again, even as we're reading that, we recognize this is an incredible storm, right? I don't, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I don't know that, at least from my knowledge of everybody in the room, we have any uh, big sailors in here. Uh, you know, I can be out in the water, and it doesn't take much for me to go. You know what? Let's go home. I just saw lightning out there. I'm out. You know, hey, those waves got to like three feet. I'm done. None of this twenty foot wave kind of stuff. Okay, but for experienced sailors, like ah, it's no big deal. Here we have a group of people that this is what they do, and they're terrified to the point where the stuff that's on the ship that they use for travel for their occupation, they don't care. Get it overboard. They're crying out. I mean, this is a big deal, what's taking place. And it's totally not what we would expect. Jonah's out. He's sleeping. Okay? He's not at all attentive to what's going on. You know, again... The the people on the ship they're throwing stuff overboard they're crying out to their gods they're misguided attempts to solve the problem if you will only one guy on the boat has the right answer and he's asleep again maybe this is a very simple thought but Jonah's sleep the sailors' actions aren't going to aren't going to solve the problem none of that is going to take care of it. They keep trying to throw stuff overboard, they're getting nowhere. Jonah's sleeping, that's getting nowhere. And again, as I think about what's taking place here, I realize that there are points where we recognize our failures, we see our sinfulness, we find it so discouraging, so overwhelming, it's almost like we're immobilized and we do nothing. Inactivity is not the answer. We have a God who does delight in mercy, who does delight in forgiveness, But it means I'm going to repent, which means, God, I'm not going to keep going my way. I'm not going to keep disobeying you. I need to turn and go the other direction and submit to you and obey you. Jonah won't do that here. Not a chance. He's going to sleep. He's going to be inactive. And it won't solve the problem. I just want to remind us that when God convicts, when we see our failures on display, If we simply remain immobilized, if we say, well, you know what? Maybe a good night's sleep will solve that. It won't. The answer is to run back to God, to repent of our sin, not to seek to alleviate that in some other way, but say, God, I know. Because Jonah doesn't see it, and it only gets worse here. Beyond his sleep, notice, secondly, his silence. You get to verse 6, a shipmaster came to him, said to him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be, that God will think upon us that we perish not. It's interesting here, two of the three commands, two of the three Hebrew words that God used with Jonah in verses 1 and 2 are used by the captain to Jonah now. Get up! Cry to your God! We're just missing that go word, but they are on a boat. Okay. Get up, cry to your God. Part of what we have to notice here is what is not said. A pagan has told God's prophet to pray, but Jonah doesn't obey. As you read through the text, does Jonah pray? Does Jonah turn to God? No. And again, We will find Jonah praying eventually, probably next week, in chapter 2, in a very unique prayer room. But here, where these pagan individuals are saying, cry out to your God, he doesn't. And the questions just continue in the middle of the storm. Jonah's silence communicates volume. Again, yeah, sleep didn't solve the problem. Silence certainly doesn't solve the problem. When you look at what the pagans, uh, pagans did, their substitute gods didn't solve the problem. They went to every deity they knew. They, they went to their own gods, and that didn't solve anything. And again, as I think about us, I do realize that there are times where we feel the weight of life. We feel the struggle with sin. We feel the frustrations that come, and we turn to all kinds of things instead of saying, God, I can't. I need your grace. I know what you desire, but I see my weakness. Instead, we say, you know what, I'm just going to flip on the TV. I'm going to surf the internet. I'm going to find a way to entertain myself to distract from the things that I'm wrestling through. I mean, perhaps even last week we sat through and worked through Jonah 1, to 1-3, and you're like, ooh, ouch, I've disobeyed God there. I need to take care of that. And then we get home, and we settle into our routine, we watch that TV, we indulge in some kind of entertainment, and we leave that behind. It's a bad move. We're filling in with substitutes. Again, we could do this with money, with food, with busyness in our schedules, anything we can do today to keep the noise in our souls, like Jim Berg talks about. You know, I, I don't want quiet, where I have to stop and think and go, all right, Lord, I mean, Jonah's going to get some solitude here very shortly. And he's going to talk to God because God won't let Jonah go. So we see what takes place. We would do well to learn to quickly turn to God in prayer, to repent of sin, to obey him, to work directly to solve the problem. Jonah's sin has deceived him. He wants his own way, but God won't give it to him. We've seen his sleep. We've seen his silence. Notice third, his solution over the verses that remain. Jonah's solution, and obviously it's no surprise, his sleep didn't solve anything. His silence, his lack of prayer didn't solve anything. And his solution didn't solve anything. Some would argue his solution is suicidal. That won't solve the problem that Jonah's wrestling with here. Because God is sovereign. He won't let Jonah die in that water. First... As we look at this, coming to verse 7, we read of the sailors' discovery. They find out who it is through this process of casting lots. They said, "Every one to his fellow, come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Again, this practice that did happen in pagan cultures, but also happened at times within Judaism, to cast lots to try to discern. Again, there's caution against that in the Old Testament, But we're also told in Proverbs 16, verse 33, you can cast the lot in the lap, but the disposing is of the Lord. There are times where God dictates and says, no, that's not what's happening. But here, God in his sovereignty works to say, it's Jonah. To reveal, here is the problem, here is the one. Their prayers haven't worked, their actions haven't worked. They realize that some kind of judgment is occurring And and so they turn to this last-ditch effort and discover Jonah is the problem. Beyond the sailor's discovery of Jonah, notice the sailor's inquiry in verse 8. The questions almost come rapid fire here. I picture it like coming back from a trip or coming home from school, and it's like, well, what about this, and what about this, and what about this? I mean, the questions just fly here before Jonah's answer. They say unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause is this evil upon us? What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy contra- country and of what people art thou? Who's responsible for this? What's your job? Where are you coming from? Where are you from? What people do you belong to? They're interesting questions. You know, it's also interesting to look at Jonah's response. They particularly ask him in here, what's your job? What's your occupation? Hmm, interesting question. Prophet? Does Jonah answer? No, he doesn't. He'll tell them, I'm in Hebrew, he'll tell them who his God is. But he's not about to tell them what his job is. He is to be a mouthpiece of God, to receive God's word and say, God has said. He has refused to do that. And so when they ask, what's your job? He doesn't answer. If he were honest here, he'd have to say, I'm a prophet and I am disobeying God. I will not give his message. I mean, again, you watch the prophets wrestle with that at points. I think of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 20. He's like, God's word was like a fire. I tried to hold it in. Like I tried to keep it in, tried to push it out, and he's like, But I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. But God's word has to go out. I can't hold it in. I'd kind of like to, but I can't. Jonah here is trying to do exactly that. As a result, he doesn't answer all of their questions. Looking at the sailors' inquiry, we come third to Jonah's identity. As he does begin to answer their questions, he says unto them, I'm in Hebrew. I fear the Lord, particularly Jehovah, the God of heaven, which hath made sea and dry land. He notes his people group, but what stands out to me even more here is that he notes that he reveres, we could say he worships Jehovah. I fear the self-existent one. I fear the Lord. I worship him. It's astounding. Think about what Jonah just said. Evidently, he's got right doctrine, but really bad practice. I mean, for us, having just walked through Titus, where we talk about belief and behavior, about our walk matching our talk, what would you say about Jonah? Great theology, bad follow-through. You think, well, you know, I fear the Lord. Do you? Do you fear him enough to realize he sent this storm? Do you fear him enough to realize you can't escape him? He disobeyed him, but he claims to fear him. Again, we have to recognize our frailty and our humanity at the same time as we look at Jonah. Where there are times where we would say theologically, you know, I know God is omniscient. He knows everything. And yet we run headlong into sin. And God knows. Or... We look at life situations where temptation was so strong, we say, I just had to. Or we look at something we should do, maybe in ministry, maybe in service, and because of the hardness of it, we say, I can't. And in that, we fail to say, I do serve the God who, of all grace, who gives all the grace that we need. Well, I, I, I do fear him. Do you? Do I? But again, our our frailty and our weakness is that so often our application far exceeds our knowledge. And in life, we need to be working, driving at saying, Lord, I want to live out the truth that I know. I don't want to have this dichotomy. I don't want to be blinded or deceived. I want my walk to match my talk. I want my behavior to match my belief. But for Jonah here, it's very clear as he reveals his identity. Yes, I'm a Hebrew. Yes, I serve Jehovah. I fear him. But he's disobeying him. He's running from it. In fact, it's staggering when you see what else he reveals in his theological knowledge. I mean, in Jonah's doctrinal statement, he says, Jehovah is the God of heaven. He made everything. He made the sea. He made the dry land. In other words, yeah, he's able to drive this storm. He made it all. He controls it all. And Jonah's running from him. That's not the kind of person to run from. Okay? You don't run from someone who has that kind of power. You know, and again, in our simple little illustration at the beginning, I'm not running from the red and blue lights. They will catch me fast. Like, that's a no-brainer. And yet, God has far more power. He has far more resources. He's far more worthy of our respect, our obedience. And yet sometimes we kind of push those things aside because in the deception of sin, in our own selfishness, we're just, we're going to go do it our way. John ought to serve as a wonderful, challenging lesson for us. At this point, we move Back away from Jonah's identity is that third point to further inquiry. The questions only continue. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? Okay, it's like the big question, right? This is every parent to a child. This is every teacher to a student. Why? What were you thinking? Ah, uh, I wasn't? But the reality is, for all the adults in the room, there are plenty of times where God could look at us, our friends could look at us, and go, why? Why would you do that? It's so clear that's wrong. Why? That's what the sailors asked Jonah here. The men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. He's so brazen at this point. He has to tell them, I've left the service of Jehovah. We get to the second question beyond why. What are we going to do? You caused this. Get us out of it. What are we going to do? Verse 11, what shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And we saw Jonah sleeping. We saw his silence when he was told that he should pray. And now we do see his solution here in verse 12. He said unto them, take me up, cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake, this great tempest is upon you. Throw me overboard. Realize what takes place in verse 12. Jonah knows. There's now no doubt in his mind. Jonah knows that all of this is because he's disobeyed God. And yet, he won't change. He won't change. I mean, there may be points where circumstances in your life come up, and you're like, Lord, is that because I did? And you're kind of wondering out loud to yourself. Jonah's not wondering here. Jonah knows, here's why this has taken place, and yet he won't obey. It reveals to us the depths of our sinful hearts, when we keep heading down this path of selfishness and sin. We need to recognize at the same time and we'll touch this more next Sunday but escape doesn't work either. We talked about sleep not working, avoiding praying doesn't work, going to substitute God's other things doesn't work. Jonah's going to try to escape. Throw me overboard and yet God won't let Jonah, go. I mean, even to the point when you continue reading there in verse 13, the sailor's like, no, let's try everything else first. It says there, nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land. It's like they heard that. Okay, let's keep rowing. Let's try to get there. And they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. So what do they do? They pray to Jehovah. They tried their gods. It didn't work. They told Jonah to talk to his God, and he wouldn't. And so now, in in what we would not expect, these pagan soldiers are doing what the prophets should have done. And they go to Jehovah. They cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. In essence, they've gotten a very brief introduction to who Jehovah is. And all they know is they want to make sure they obey what is his pleasure. Jonah has a much deeper theology or much deeper history with Jehovah, and he won't. These guys have been introduced to Jehovah through Jonah, and they pray and say, All right, Lord, we're going to throw this guy overboard. Don't hold it against us, please. As these pagans, these sailors, pray. So again, as we come to verse 15, they toss him overboard. The storm stops. They took up Jonah, cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. And coming out of this, what happens? We're going to get to the Jonah part next week. But notice God's worshiped. He's revered. People begin to believe, here's the one who deserves our faith. Because God in his just sovereignty is bringing chastisement upon the prophet. But God in his mercy has delivered these sailors. God in his ability has created the storm and now caused it to stop. Because God is acting for his own glory. So we read in verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord. They feared Jehovah exceedingly. And offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. I mean, it's, it's not like, well, Lord, if you get us out of the storm then, this is after the fact. They offer sacrifices to him. They commit to him through vows because of what he's done. His ability's on display. His sovereignty's on display. His mercy is on display. And he deserves glory. So I wonder what our lives look like. Certainly, at least I hope, our circumstances don't look nearly as exciting. You read something like this and you go, man, I hope life is boring this week. But however God and his wisdom and his sovereignty orients the details of your life, my question for all of us is, will we obey? When he prompts for us to do something good, will we follow through or Will we excuse it? Will we be distracted by other things to avoid it? Or will we obey? Perhaps as we work through this, the Lord and his spirit, I mean, we're in Jonah. It's not like, hey, we're talking about lying or kindness or anger or any of those things. We're in Jonah. But perhaps the Lord's put his finger on something in your life. You're like, yeah, you need to make that right. Right there. Do it. I mean, the wonderful thing is we have a God who delights in mercy. He's quick to forgive. He's faithful and just. We say he's reliable and right to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, First 1-9. Make it right. But coming out of those things, continue to obey, continue to serve, give glory to him because he's clearly worthy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for recording for us in your wisdom the details of what took place with Jonah, to recognize your character on display, to to see your desire to be merciful to people who are incredibly wicked in chapter 3, but also to see you work in the life of someone who was a servant of you, who chose to disobey you. Lord, I pray that it would challenge each of us to make things right when needed. To obey you as you prompt and you direct. That, Lord, you would bring glory to yourself through us. Again, Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray.